stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome, everybody. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm here today with Dan. This is Patrick. And uh, we're coming to you with the second installment in a series that we started something like 400 years ago. I think it was actually about a year and a half ago that we're calling Tech <laughs> Spotlights. Uh, and today we are finally getting back to that series and, uh, and we're taking advantage of the you know conditions that we're living through and how crazy things are to kind of go back and catch up on some things that we wanted to circle back around to. So, you know, in case somebody in the future is listening to this, we are still in the midst of a global pandemic. Things are crazy. Um, Jamie just moved last week, which is a reason why he's not here today. Uh, I'm moving in a couple of days. There's just a lot of change in the air. Stuff's crazy. But there are some things that um, are easy to talk about during complicated times. And we figured this would be a nice opportunity to focus on one of those things. And um, the first piece of technology that I wanted to do, even before we did the spinner, which was the first tech spotlight, is uh, is a machine in Blade Runner that I've always found so fascinating for so many levels, and it's the Esper. Um, the Esper is known, obviously, as a piece of, te- of technology cinematically in its own right, but it's also known within fandom because it, of course, you know, is the name of the Esper edition slash the retirement edition that came out um, of the soundtrack. So it's just sort of this word that has become very beloved in fandom. Speaking um, of which, real quick, Patrick, I had a question yeah. for you that maybe the audience has as well, but I've never researched this. Do you know where the term Esper is first mentioned? Because it's not not called out by name in the film, so I know it doesn't come from the film. Uh, well, it, it is in the movie because it's in, the logo is very visible in Deckard's apartment. Oh, okay. Well, there um, you go. And because it, it because it was in the press kit, which we'll get to in a minute, and because it was circulated around the time of the premiere, it was sort of you know out there. There was a lot of branding work done on it, which is really interesting. Um, and a beautiful, beautiful logo by somebody that we're hoping to have come on the show soon. But we'll get to that. Anyway, before we get further into this rabbit hole, um, and just a heads up, this is going to be a mini-sode because there is so much going on, so we're going to kind of keep it short. So, um, And if this is something we want to revisit, we will. But before we get you know too deep into it, um, Dan, how are you doing? And what do you think of when you think of the Esper? What is it to you? Enhanced 224 to 176. Enhance. Hey, everyone, and Patrick. Um, yeah, doing well, just, you know staying home and uh, working my weird emergency schedule, but um, lots of time to read and reflect and do research. So I did some of that for this episode. I'm kind of flipping through my my collection of Blade Runner books, and uh, it's always interesting to see uh, what you can find in old interviews and such. But um, yeah, in terms of uh, my connection to it, um, I mean, 
I think of a couple of things uh, when I fir- when I see the film. You know, one is sort of you've got this uh, real li- the real life was in the '80s at the time. You know, very late '70s, early '80s design stuff, and so inevitably you have these CRT screens all over the place, right? So the Esper, just like other things, the vid phone, etc., has this bulky cathode ray tube based screen on the inside. Of course, no way for even Sid Mead to predict at the time that CRTs were going to go away and we were going to go to full flat screen. Um, but uh, so, so it always, it doesn't pull me out of anything because I accept that this is a film that had to be made in reality with real technology, et cetera. Um, but it always reminds me of kind of the time it was made, which again, we know Blade Runner is something that has aged very well compared to a lot of other films from this era or even before. Um, so I'm certainly not faulting them for that, but it's just something that reminds me. I'm like, oh, right. This is like a long time ago when they really didn't know what 2019, 2020, et cetera, were going to look like, or even 20 years from now. Um, and so there's a little bit of that aspect as well as like kind of the analog buttons and stuff like that. But then again, it's blended with these modern concepts like voice command and voice recognition which i mean at this point i don't even use siri anymore because it's so frustrating and antiquated and like not anywhere on par with any science fiction film ever that i just want to throw my phone directly out the window every time i try so like every once in a while i'll convince myself that i'm like hey siri let me see oh she's probably gonna activate yeah sure enough (laughs) she worked see that she was like siri go away (laughs) she's listening now now that you're giving her shit she's listening exactly she's like siri has gotten worse i don't know what is up with that shit but that has gotten significantly worse and i just watch too much sci-fi to deal with like incompetent ai so i'm like okay i'm just gonna dial someone's number or like click their their Mm -hmm. contact info because even telling her to try and do it is just so worthless so the fact that at least um seamless voice command is shown in this sequence is very science fiction because for the most part we're not really there yet and there are different applications for example our air traffic control simulators um when they're automated work off voice recognition there's usually a voice uh, a ghost pilot working in the back kind of fixing the computer's mistakes but the computer generally can recognize like turn down when turn base clear to land and and, and responds etc cetera, etc cetera. so obviously siri's not the only system in this um, and some work better than others uh, but so the juxtaposition of sort of the reality of the time the science fiction of the time and then the reality of now technology and uh, science fiction from now, it's always interesting to sort of look back 30, 40 years later and see what has actually happened and what looks antiquated and what looks still too futuristic for what we actually have. Um, Of course, one of those things, which I'm sure we'll get into the detail is just the, in terms of photography, just the general capability of being able to, and you see this in movies all the time, right? Uh, For example, some crime is committed and you see the uh, close, uh, like cctv or whatever the 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 camera circuit um of the film later and they always have some ability to either zoom zoom into this blurry face which of course gets blurrier and blurrier the more you move in and then some software cleans it up and you get this like perfect image where you can see like the color of the dude's mustache and it's just like that doesn't exist because of course that's not how resolution works and that's not something we can really change with current technology right um we also have satellites there's a there's a famous one um i think I think there's a picture like it's like in Singapore or something like that but there's that satellite that has taken like the most detailed picture like ever from space or whatever and it's crazy you can zoom in and see like individual flowers like from space like that thing is gnarly I forget how many megapixels that picture is but so you know we have some of that but 
anyways, the clash between what's possible in reality and what they're showing in the film always strikes me. And so that's kind of fun. Um, and then in general, sort of Deckard's loneliness, I think, is also highlighted in that scene. You know, he's sitting by himself, drinking, talking to someone, but it's not really a thing. He's just talking to a computer and, and going through this process. Um, and so, yeah, you, you kind of wonder what, you know, especially now that we're using Zoom and Skype and we're doing so much communication from home. It's like, it does make you think like, yeah, did Deckard have friends? Did he ever get on a video call with anyone? It just, he seems to live such a lonely life. And, you know, the back of my mind, that always strikes me about the Esper as well, kind of indirectly. Um, but I love the scene and it's really cool. And again, as we get into production stuff, uh, they did shoot an initial prop that was in the scene with Harrison Ford. And then um, I think I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but they ended up reshooting that in a London studio. So famously, uh, although, you know, there's interviews with Harrison Ford where he says that his um, dialogue, he wasn't interacting with a machine at the time. So maybe even the original they shot kind of separately from the scene was Harrison Ford. Obviously there are side view shots of him with the machine, but when you're looking at his face and he's talking to it, um, I don't think he was actually looking at any kind of screen or anything like that. Um, but anyways, yeah, those are kind of my initial thoughts. Move in. Stop. Pull out track right. Stop. Center and pull back. Stop. Yeah, I don't think there would have been a reason to have him actually looking at it because the priority, in the, especially in that apartment would, where the lighting was such a challenge, right, would be to have just a, a reliable illumination source for him. And I don't think that the the Esper, as it was, would do it. It's interesting you say about the CRT. It's, you know, obviously they didn't have flat screen. Um, well, they, they had flat screen technology, but it wasn't, you know, available on that kind of a scale or in any kind of a reasonable budget. They could have used a green screen, right, and just had some sort of a flat screen with a, with a projected image on top of it. Um, but but they didn't, and I love that because it actually results in what I think uh, just a way more believable piece of machinery. Because what we actually see in the movie is the VHS that is being piped through it. Like we're actually seeing, you know, like a VCR quality, you know, shit early '80s, you know, um, tape basically playing through it, which is really interesting. Right, and the fact that some of the video from uh, Gaff's spinner was done in the same way mm -hmm. makes me think that either using CRT and piping VHS through it that way was just so cheap and so accessible that that's just what they did for it. Cause I mean, they had to mount little CRTs inside the spinner and then pipe, right. you know? So, I mean, that's kind of complicated as opposed to doing green screen, for example. So must've been an advantage either in looks or economics or both. Or just a part of the, part of the world building, you know, the, the cassette futurism had a look to it. And, and there was this beautiful like juxtaposition of the kind of warm curvature of a CRT television with this kind of crazy incomprehensible futuristic technology. I wanted to get back to something you said a second ago about um, the spinner, about Gaff Spinner. So we see Esper's in a, a number of instances in the film. Of course, there's the scene in Deckard's apartment where he's examining Leon's photos. That's where everybody kind of thinks of the Esper. But but we also see him, of course, at HQ, right? That's where we're seeing, you know, we're being introduced to who replicants are. That's an Esper device. And also in the spinners, those little screens that are popping up with infometrics and things, that's, that's from... Um, an Esper machine as well. And that gets me to this point that I think a, a really easily overlooked aspect of the futurism of this device is the fact that it's networked. And that's something that like nobody ever talks about, but is so fascinating because you can send images from your local Esper device as an officer 
to central headquarters and you can actually get you know feedback on it and you can have things sent to you as well so that's like this 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 layer of this of this world building that i think is really easy to overlook because of course the enhance 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 aspect is just so visually interesting and it gets you thinking about you know what kind of technology could possibly facilitate that and of course there are some real world applications of that which we can kind of end by getting to that are you know real so in some ways the futurism in that aspect is is kind of is kind of accurate although we're nowhere near being able to zoom in and see reflections and whiskey glasses and shit like that but um but the networking aspect of it is completely accurate every police officer well not everyone but most of them have some sort of body camera they have some sort of you know like remote field equipment that is linked into you know some central hub somewhere in their station you know, every one of us who's out there with our smart devices is recording data, whether we like it or not. That's being, you know, humped to a uh, pumped to a relay somewhere that we don't have any, you know, control over. But we're we're all part of this network of information, right? And it leads to this like incredibly, um, you know, surveillance ready environment, which of course in the world of Blade Runner, that I mean, that's a that's a huge deal. The fact that you have an environment that you can basically go into any kind of detail to get any kind of information you want to, as long as you have some sort of a visual reference, like that is, you know, as oppressive as it can get. And also, I think just incredibly fascinating. Um, something else that you had mentioned that uh, I think is, um, is interesting is the voice recognition. So, so, of course, there are, you know, devices in the real world. I guess, for one thing, before I get into that, in the world of like early 1980s production design, to me, voice recognition was like about as unsexy as it got because that's just sort of like a default trope. You see it in Star Trek, you see it in everything, people talking to computers and or something and the AI gets back to them, right? But the way that the voice recognition is used with the Esper, I think is really intuitive and really interesting. The fact that Deckard is speaking to it, basically like, you know, you and I just talked at great length about the, the you know, Apollo 11 mission on frame rate. He's using it syntactically very much like the astronauts were using the, that verb noun syntax in the um, moon landing, right? Like basically he, it's, it's not like it can just respond to anything. It's responding to some sort of specific input and giving some sort of a specific output. So he's having it enhance on a certain, you know, grid, a certain amount. Right. Not and, to mention that yeah. based on what you're saying, um, sorry to interrupt, but you're bringing up really good points that I didn't thought of. But also the way the scene plays out shows you that while Deckard is retired and maybe a little rusty, he's very familiar with that Asper machine because, I mean, he's calling out numbers and grids, you know, enhanced 22 to 14. And, you know, I, I've always tried on rewatches when I'm watching the movie for context and indirect information to figure out are these numbers representing anything real? And can you pay attention to the screen? Because the screen has grid coordinates as it moves around, those coordinates right. change. As far as I can tell, it's random. I don't think there is any. It, it is random. And also if you pay attention, the numbers don't change on the bottom of the screen. It always it always goes mm. to the exact same resolution and the exact same grid coordinate on the, the number readout on the bottom, oh, regardless of what he says. So the little cursor moves around, but it's actually just saying it's on the same digital loop every single time. Which is which is fine because in the context of seeing this in theater, you're not like looking for that. You know, you're so mystified by what right. Doing, right, and I don't think we can really harp on uh, Ridley Scott in moments where he didn't go like a thousand percent into some little detail. Because again, we've talked about, for example, like the air traffic language when the spinner is, you know, like they did, they went so far in a 
but like above and beyond the necessary detail um, oh, yeah. in terms of the normal moviegoer that it's like i'm not gonna hate on the little details here and there that are that are the, where they didn't go all the way because they did so much of it but what's what's crazy though is that and in, in, in so many of those little details they went so all the way that it's like still astounding like in, in some of the research i was doing for the vidphone episode that i hope we get through soon um i found out that the appreciation rate if it had projected as as it would have from the 1980s into the into 2019 for a video call or just basically for like a payphone call, like that would have been about the exact amount it would have cost $1.25, which is just just crazy that somebody actually thought about that, you know? Anyway, regardless, back to the Esper. Um, the, uh, the way that he interacts with it to me feels very, very real and very accurate and very utilitarian. This is not sexy science fiction technology. This isn't somebody, you know, I mean, what he's doing with it is is alluring in that it's it's giving him this almost like preternatural ability to you know, go through all of this visual data, but he's interacting with it in a way that's totally real. Just like the spinners aren't magic flying carpets, right? Just like the vidphone isn't some sort of a magical hologram where somebody just pops up next to you. These are all like, they're one level removed from what was possible in the, in the 1980s and still somewhat removed from what we can do now, but they're all uh, believable. And I think that that's just part of why that it works so well and why it's kind of lodged in the popular consciousness. One other thing before we get to the production I want to m mention is um, you were mentioning how, uh, you know, we don't have the ability to, you know, do that thing where you can zoom in from, you know, a, from a drone and get the color of somebody's mustache or something like that. But there are actually algorithms that, that you know, agencies of all different types use to enhance digital photos, which obviously you know about. Um, and some of them are, are not quite Esper level, but are pretty extraordinary because the idea is you have a certain level of resolution of captured image data, right? And it forms outlines of certain types of, of light and dark, of luminosity. And then algorithmically, you can have that thing treated in such a way where it will like deterministically, it'll say like, you know, if this, if this is next to this kind of a pixel and this kind of a pixel, there's like an 82% chance it's probably this color. So it'll choose it and it'll actually be able to winnow through a lot of, um, you know, extra kind of chaos and come up with something that's sort of accurate. Um, oh, that's so, really cool. So enhancing, yeah, and enhancing photos digitally um, from like, from very high up, I don't know about like ISS high up, but from like far away is, uh, is, is possible. Of course, the difference there is that what's happening with the Esper isn't just enhancing the resolution right of the photo. It's, it's plumbing through three-dimensional space basically with visual data. So, so that's a whole obviously different thing, but there is a moment, you know, when, when he says enhance and it crystallizes for a second and that in and of itself is actually almost possible with today's technology, which is crazy. Anyway, you have access to a really amazing book that I want you to tell us all about. And, um, and in the book, they go uh, into some more detail via Doug Trumbull um, about what this thing actually was and how it came to be. Do you want to uh, take a second and read some of that to us? Yeah, totally. I, I noticed um, that this Doug Turnbull uh, quote is so good that I wasn't going to try and paraphrase it because he describes the process um, very well. But this is from, um, the title is Blade Runner, The Inside Story by Don Shea. And uh, it's uh, published by Titan Books. Uh, I think 2000 is when they reprinted this. I think it's basically a reprint of the original paperback uh, Cinefix, which of course is still a publication. In fact, they did um, an issue that had uh, Ryan Gosling on the cover for 2049, which I also uh, own. This one is a little harder to find and a little expensive. You can find it on eBay if you're uh, willing to uh, pay for it. But um, it's a really beautiful book. It has a lot of production photos that I haven't seen anywhere else. Again, some of our fans have it. Um, so if you do have it, this is starting on page, it's page 21 and 22. 
where Doug Turnbull is talking a lot of production. Afterwards, he talks about Tyrell Pyramid. So I'm going to read what he had to say about the production of these Esper scenes. And again, this is Doug Turnbull, um, who was, what was this official title? Production? No, he wasn't a production designer. He was producer, right? Uh, not FX. He was the VFX. That's right. He's a VFX. For it. I don't know what his actual title was, but 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 Doug, but Doug Trumbull is one of the most you know legendary VFX designers of the 20th century. Right. Another short notice requirement called for the production of a one minute film sequence to be transferred to video and used in Deckard's home Esper terminal as he studies a small snapshot he had found in Leon's hotel room. Quote: I suggested that they use a little card of plastic that looks sort of like a video disc. Said Trumbull with some sort of holographic image embedded in there that you can't really see without putting it in a viewer. Deckard takes it and sticks it in this sort of video monitor thing, and he's able to just verbally tell the device to turn left, turn right, enlarge, enhance, process, or whatever this image. We did the footage for that using still photographs, and we set up this little set on the stage off to the side of Tyrell's office. The photo Deckard was studying was supposed to be a guy sitting at a desk in this kind of old-style apartment and we did enormously careful lighting to give it almost a Rembrandt painting type look. There was the guy in the desk, and on the desk was a lamp that threw this pool of light that was very warm and kind of sepia tone. And then the rest of the room was sort of dark with all of this old furniture around. It was very atmospheric. Then, way off in the next room, about 20 feet away, was a mirror on the wall that reflected the other side of the room that you couldn't actually see. And in that reflection was a boudoir which had mirrors on the doors reflecting the image of someone on a bed, which was even farther out of the picture. After we lit this whole thing very carefully, we brought in Rucker Hauer, who was supposed to be sitting at the desk, and shot this whole series of rather strange photographs. For one thing, we wanted to make it look like kind of a candid snapshot. And at the moment the picture was taken, the guy's just turning towards the camera, so his face is blurred. To do that, we came up with a little beeper, like a metronome beeper, that would go off when the camera shutter opened. That would be Rutgers' cue to start turning his head, and there would be about a five-second exposure. Then we set up a motorized Nikon with the right lens and the right exposure, put the camera on a dolly so we could shoot from a whole series of different positions and actually physically move through the room, panning and tilting in sequence, with each photograph being about a foot away from the other. For the areas that were going to be scrutinized in more detail, we also shot a number of large format 8x10 transparencies. So what we had was this whole series of photographs, and on each of them, Rutger was blurred the same way. We ended up going right in close on his face, which is blurred now a foot horizontally as he turns his head. It's not even recognizable. Then the camera moves down to the table and looks at the props there, and then zooms back to his face, and looks over his shoulder and sees a mirror on the table in the next room, and then moves in there. And there's this whole tableau of old wine bottle and clock and mirror and a couple of other things on this tabletop. And it all looks sort of like a Rembrandt, Rembrandt lit still life. The camera zooms in on the reflection in the mirror and then proceeds to reverse and go across the room to the boudoir, which is open, and all the way up to microphotography of the sequence on a dress, one of which provides a clue because it's some kind of silica type disc. Then it moves over to the mirror on the boudoir to see this woman lying on the bed. It goes into the reflection and we shot a bunch of flopped stills of the woman in bed and zoomed in on a tattoo on her arm. After all that was done, Dom Baker shot this whole sequence on an animation stand using sort of a flash and fade technique. About every six frames, you'd see one of these stills and it would go flash and then fade. And the next one would come up and it'd go flash and then fade. And each one was a little closer, a little more magnified version. It looked really neat. 
Then all that was transferred to videotape and displayed on a monitor while Deckard's sitting there giving verbal commands. Turn left, turn right, move in, process, enhance. It was a weird kind of voyeuristic scene as though that one holographic image had everything in the whole building recorded on one little frame, end quote. Due to last minute change in the live action shooting schedule, Don Baker ultimately found himself with only a three day deadline to produce the required expert footage, which involved not only re-photographing the stills on motion picture film, but also designing and preparing numerous graphic elements as well. Once everything was ready to shoot, he rented time on a 35 millimeter animation stand at Nick Vasu Inc. in Hollywood, spent 48 straight hours on the job, slept a bit in the lab parking lot while it was being processed, and then took it immediately to be transferred onto videotape. That is incredible. The amount, the amount of effort that went into a sequence that lasts like 40 seconds on film um, is just extraordinary. And I have to say, for people who haven't seen the actual photographs that, that Dan was just reading about, they are just some of the most amazing Blade Runner imagery you will ever see, specifically that one shot where Roy is sitting at the table turning his head. That's like just one of my favorite, my favorite images from, uh, from the entire film, like the, the composition. There's this portrait on the wall that I, I don't know if it's like Vermeer or something, but it, it's like a very famous Dutch master portrait, but it's also askew. Like you can tell that they're living this kind of bohemian lifestyle where it's like a little bit dirty, but it's very, very beautiful. And it's just so, it's so non-robotic. You know, it's so clear how these replicants lived, that they lived like the most, you know, human, humans possible. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful shot. And that long exposure where his face is blurred too, it's, just, it's very haunting. Um, and I love how they used basically a traditional animation process with overlays being scrolled by one another to create this thing that was at the end of the day, like so technologically fascinating. It was actually made using technology that's been used widely since the 1930s, you know? Um, it's just extraordinary. There's also another kind of little, you know, blurb that I'll read quick while we're talking. Um, this is, this is, there's a few different versions of this quote. There's one from the press kit. There's one in the production notes. There's one that was circulated with, uh, a, a, was a cinema, Cinefax magazine. Um, and the particular version I'm going to read right now uh, was sent to us by uh, Carla, who is, you know, beyond a dear friend. She's just one of our favorite people. She gave us a, a slightly longer version of this. And, um, and yeah. she's a patron. Go to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support if you want to become <laughs> she's <patron>. a patron. <laughs> exactly. Um, and she sent us like a little bit of an expanded version. So I'll read that quickly. So the 1982 press kit for Blade Runner describes the S for quote, a high density computer with a very powerful three-dimensional resolution capacity and a cryogenic cooling system. The police cars in Decker's apartment contain small models which can be channeled into the large one at police headquarters. This big apparatus is a well-worn retrofitted part of the furniture. Among many functions, the Esper can analyze and enlarge photos, enabling investigators to search a room without being there. Track 45 right. Stop. Center and stop. Enhance 34 to 36. And that's exactly what it does. And again, in that little quote, you can see the networking thing that I was talking about, which still is just like never, even reading about this episode, nobody was mentioning what, it, what, a, what a fascinating idea that was. But there wasn't like this idea of a centralized accessible internet, let alone one that was remotely accessible from cars. It's just, it's nuts. I mean, it's, it's such a cool, such a cool idea. Um, unless you have more production stuff to talk about, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the technological applications of it and, and the real world, and then we can close. Is that good for you? 
Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, yeah. when, we, when we close, I have a quote from Rutger Hauer because this is one of his favorite scenes in the film and he gets a little philosophical about it. So I'll leave that for the end, but go ahead with it. Oh my God, I love it. Uh, that, any, any excuse to hear Rucker talk about anything is a gift. Um, so the, the, there's, there's, there is actually like a real world technology that kind of does this on a certain scale. And it's called light field photography. Does, do you know about it? Have you read about it? I don't. Um, it's also called dual photography. So the, the fundamental issue with photography, you can get the most incredibly, you know, uh, the highest resolution camera available with the best lens, with the best depth of field, all these different things. At the end of the day, it can only capture one real thing metrically, which is luminosity, the amount of light, right? It can capture how light or dark something is. And, th and then from that information, you can get, you know, an extraordinary amount of information. You can have these beautiful, beautiful photographs, but it's still basically one thing. If you can also capture the source of light, the angle at which it's traveling, then you can capture basically everything visually about something. So the idea for that theoretically has been around for over a century. Um, there were people in the 19, in the, in like the first decade of the 1900s talking about what if we could basically have huge arrays of camera lenses gathering information of a single source. Um, technology was obviously not in a place to be able to do that in any real way back then. But that idea and, and it was basically iterated on through much of the 20th century. And then by the time the 21st century came around, advances in digital imaging technology and compositing different images together meant that we were actually in a place where we could do that. So you have in the mid 2000s, a company called Lytros. I think it's Light, is it Lytros or Light? Now I'm thinking it might be Lytos. Hang on, let me, I had this pulled up. Lytro, okay, just Lytro, um, which unfortunately is defunct. I don't know why, but, uh, but they were able to produce a camera that had a mega array of lenses in it, tiny, tiny lenses in it, um, that you could basically hold in the palm of your hand. And because it captured all of the light data available, including the direction of the light, um, you could basically go into the image as deep as you wanted and change the focus, change the depth of field. Um, and it all came about, the guy who invented that technology was saying he was taking a photograph of his daughter's birthday party and the, the best photo that he had, her smile was out of focus, so it didn't look very good. And he was like, how frustrating is it that I can't just change that, right? Um, so that technology actually exists now. There's an Adobe computer, uh, not a computer, there's an Adobe program also called the Adobe uh, Lightfield, which uh, lens, it's a, it's a cluster that's basically a super lens gathering enough information when taking a picture that you can change the focal length of the image in post-production. And it's 19 different lenses in a cluster and you can take 19 separate 5.2 megapixel photographs at the same time. And then the, the file, the digital um, compositing file adds it all together into one image and then you can scroll through all those different depths of field and you can find what you want. So you can't actually travel around three-dimensionally in space. You can't like enter it and go through different rooms, obviously. But if there is something, if there's a mirror on the far side of a photograph that's completely out of focus when you first look at it, you can actually travel through different depths of field to get to that mirror. And then because you do have a lot of information about it, you can zoom in a shitload more on it because you have a higher resolution. So the idea is you can have basically a complete light field captured at the same time. Um, and that's consumer grade technology that you can get for a few hundred dollars. There are smartphones that have the ability to do that now. Uh, there's Android devices that have very, you know, limited, basically they're, they're not, obviously you don't have a super cluster of lenses involved, but you have digital imaging capabilities that can let you basically travel into a photograph. Um, anybody who takes an iPhone photo with portrait mode on knows to a degree what I'm talking about. Obviously it's different, but you can at least in a, in a, a manufactured sense, 
navigate the depth of field. You can select what to put in the foreground, what to put in the background. And if you don't like that, you can go ahead and bring the background back into sharper relief again so you can see it. That's really cool. I mean, it's making me think that while there may not be a machine like the Esper necessarily that puts all this together, although we don't have access to like proprietary CIA technology, so who knows what they're using. But, you know, HDR, high dynamic range lighting mm -hmm. is also a similar, a related field to this where, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I know about HDR, uh, you know, how like, you know, if you focus on a, on a highly lit um, object, everything else behind it will sort of look darker and vice versa. And HDR sort of creates different focal points. I think it's three of them and then puts them all together to sort of give you the best lighting on different depths of field and, and all that. In um, real time too. In real time. So if you combine like HDR with uh, this um, focus, light field technology, light field yeah. technology that you're talking about, um, as well as the digital program that allows you to sort of extrapolate a blurry image into what it likely is going to look like mm -hmm. or what likely the color is. And then last, so I'm describing different types of technology that, you know, theoretically could all be put into the same machine. And that are networked, right? On a, on a network, network, right? And then lastly, I was going to ask you, um, what about the technology, uh, I'm going to have to rely on your knowledge here because I didn't look it up and don't know it, but I can think of two film examples of it. The first one, probably one of the very first times I ever saw this on screen, was the very beginning of The Matrix, where Trinity gets uh, burst into by, by G-Men or by the, by the Men in Black or whatever they're called in the film, mm -hmm. the, agents. the Agents. And when she goes up to do that like praying mantis kick or, or whatever it is, yeah. the screen pauses and the camera rotates around her in three dimensions. And yeah, bullet seemed, time. Right, which seemed impossible. And then another one is actually a comedy for whatever reason uh, that I can think of. I think it's the other guys, right? With Mark Wahlberg. And, God, I fucking uh, love that movie. Right, but and, there's the yeah. scene in the bar where they're like partying and there's like a beer right. being spilled in midair and they freeze the scene and sort of navigate around the room. Uh, do mm -hmm. you know what was used to do that? Is that just yeah, multiple so camera setup? Yeah, I I don't know about the other guys, but but I but I know the technology behind the Matrix is stuff extremely well, and that's something that that's called bullet time because of the sequence in the Matrix where you know there's bullets flying at um, Neo, um, and it's very similar. It's just the way that the lenses are oriented. So in that example, you have a number of lenses that are mounted on a rail, and they're going um, you know more or less laterally. So you have like you know 1924 or whatever camera, and they're actually cameras in that case. They're actually full independent. I think they're all independent, just DSLR cameras that take a photograph that's staggered, uh, you know, extremely, extremely close. So basically you have an event happening and then you have it being photographed just fast enough that the light from each photograph won't screw up the next photograph after it. So it's like, you know, extremely fast. Um, and the idea is that you're capturing as much three-dimensional data by, by getting it from as many angles as possible, which is basically what we're talking about here. The difference in that case, right, is that they're on a rail, is that they're, they're next to each other. And, the, and in this particular case, it's a cluster. They're all, they're all more or less emanating from the same spot. It's a bunch of tiny lenses that are also sometimes called fish, not, uh, not fish eye, um, fly eye lenses because it looks almost like the eye of an insect, right? Um, or of a fly with the many different lenses on it. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is, is that you're, you're just capturing, you know, the same thing. You're, you're capturing as much of that one instance of something visually as you possibly can. Um, and the best way to do that, of course, is to capture as much information about the light as you can. And what I love about this scene in closing is that the actual photograph is so beautiful and it tells such a story in and of itself. And it's easy to get carried away with the technology because it's so fascinating. But at the end of the day, this is a photograph taken by Leon, this, this replicant who is a class A physical level, but a class C mental level, right? This guy who 
is like kind of a big, dumb, you know, lumbering, you know, uh, workman, not to say workmen are dumb and lumbering, but, but he specifically is right. Um, and then, but he like the, his favorite thing in the entire world, like we've discussed in the show before are his photographs, like to him, that's everything. And, and it's a moment that he captured in time. And it is a gorgeous moment. The photograph that he's actually, the Decker is navigating through in his apartment is just such a beautiful work of art that is capturing so much story in it. Right. You have this, this apartment that where these, you know, these refugees are hiding out. You have, you know, Roy being caught in a moment of contemplation at a table with shoes on the floor and a knocked over bottle next to him. And then you have Zora rooms away in this incredibly beautiful state of repose, almost like she was painted by Vermeer or something. Just this, just just incredibly just sweet moment that has so much story behind it. It's just amazing. And we don't get to see anything about their existence other than when they're just, you know, interacting with the, the main characters that were following, you know, basically Decker. Like we don't really get to see them at all. But in that little tiny snapshot, which seen is seen, of course, you know, very grainily through this crappy monitor. And then, you know, we don't get very much information visually about it, but we get just enough to see this entire other existence and what they were actually fighting to keep, which looked like a really basic, poor, beautiful human life that they enjoyed for as long as they were able to, you know? Um, and I think that part of why the Esper means so much to me personally is that, is that it's the only window we have in the entire film into what their lives actually were like when they weren't on the run and they weren't fighting and they weren't intimidating people and they weren't in duress, when they were just having a quiet moment when they, one of them was asleep and one of them was at a table and one of them was taking a photograph of the people he loved, the replicants that he loved. It's a beautiful moment. Enhance 34 to 46. Pull back. Wait a minute. Go right. Stop. Enhance 5719. Track 45 left. Stop. Yeah, and, and essentially... I love when things just come up organically in these episodes because I didn't think about it this way, especially since we are focused on the technology. But um, from a storytelling point of view, it's also interesting that, again, we can relate to these replicants, especially Roy, I think, but in general, even Leon, because all they're doing is like documenting their lives and trying to preserve memories. Because remember, they don't have these Nexus Sixes don't have all the memories that we have. They don't have a past. They don't have a family. They were their own friends and family, essentially. And you can see, you know, the disappointment in Leon's face when he says someone was there and, you know, I didn't, he didn't get his precious photos, you know. Um, and so there's something really beautiful about that. Um, and also juxtaposed to Deckard, who doesn't give a shit about any of that. And he's using these photographs as a, a a means to an end to find or to hunt down, find and kill these things, right? Like that's what he cares about. So he can go home and drink or whatever, continue his life. So it's really interesting that once again, we are being shown the humanity of replicants and the mechanical nature of a job like Deckard's. Um, it's just, it's just another beautiful sort of reversing of the roles, the protagonist antagonist thing that we talk about all the time. And also this beautiful image of this closed, these two closed systems just 
almost touching, right? The closed system of this apartment, this Bohemian apartment that is now lost forever by the time Deckard is seeing these photos, that's the, the death knell of that existence for them, right? Um, this like window into that apartment. And then from the vantage point of Deckard in his own little apartment, his own little hole, right? His own dark room. Um, and, 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 you know, all of the light in that room is basically from like one fire source, right? And then just this screen. And then you look at the, at the apartment that the replicants are hiding out in, and it's just, it's just, it's lit so beautifully. It's so warm and it's so inviting. And you have Deckard holed up in this just, just grungy, rundown place, drunk, passing out, playing a piano. It's just, it's just, uh, it's an amazing moment. And it's, and it's a moment of, it, you know, I, I just, I'm thinking about this now too. I know what we're going to close, but Roy turning his head, I think is very important too, because he's turning to look at Leon, right? Who you probably just realized was taking a photograph and he's like, what, you know, what are you, what are you doing? Um, but he's also sort of looking at Deckard in that moment. There's this sense that he's looking over his shoulder into the eyes of the person who is hunting him. And in doing that, he's kind of looking at us too, right? Um, and it's just, uh, it captures a lot, that one, that one, that one moment. So for those of you following along at home, this is from Paul Salmon's famous Future Noir. This is the third edition of the uh, book, page 170. And this is Rucker Hauer talking. Harrison examining that photograph is one of my favorite sequences in the film because it says, watch me create a lie. You see, the outcome of this process is a blur, an image of a person who really could be anybody, a man, a woman, somebody wearing a wig, anybody. And the lie? There are many. One lie is that there are two Roy's in the room, I and a stand-in. Another is that there's a false Zora. A third is that the photo itself is a lie. You only think one person's in that room, but there are two. So that whole Esper sequence shows how you can play with images and tell a story, and at the same time, completely bullshit someone which is just like making a motion picture, come to think of it. But the truth of that photo is, there is no truth. Enhance 15 to 23. Give me a hard copy right there. Holy shit. <laughs> I know. That I just ran incredible. into that. I didn't even remember that was in the book, but I mean, I've read man. that book multiple times. I don't, I don't I even remember that moment. That's, that's extraordinary. I will say, I'll speak for all of us when I say that I really miss Rucker Howard because man, yeah. he was a poetic man. That's beautiful. Anyway. Um, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, if you, if you, you know, have thoughts on the Esper uh, and just, you know, it's place in science fiction, it's place in your life, you know, write in, let us know. Um, we, uh, we're coming back with, with some longer form content again shortly, but in the meantime, um, stay safe, stay well and have a better one. And we'll be thinking of you all. Thanks everyone. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. 
If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.